I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author, journalist, historian, maritime engineer, Jessica DeLong. Her new book is Saved at the Seawall, stories from the September 11th boat lift. At 10.45 a.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, September 11, 2001, the United States Coast Guard issued the call for all available boats to assist the evacuation of Lower Manhattan. But hours before the official call went out, tugs, ferries, dinner boats, and other vessels had already raced to the rescue from points all across the port of New York and New Jersey. In less than nine hours, approximately 800 mariners aboard 150 vessels transported nearly half a million people from Manhattan. This was the largest maritime evacuation in history, and yet the story of this heroic effort has never been fully told. A journalist and historian, Jessica DeLong, herself chief engineer emeriti of the retired New York City fireboat John J. Harvey, she served at Ground Zero, spending four days supplying Hudson River water to fight the fires at the World Trade Center. To tell the story of this maritime rescue, she drew on her own experiences as well as eyewitness accounts to weave together the personal stories of people rescued that day with those of the mariners who saved them. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the first question, of course, is for me anyway, is why do we need to know about this? I mean, uh, September 11th is coming up. Um, Why is this evacuation and the way it came about and the people involved so important for us as a country to know about? Because most people don't know about this. Um, And I do have to say, I just want to throw this in. I live a couple blocks from uh, 9-11, from from the World Trade Center. So, um, I'm very much a part of that whole scene and the whole context. Um, but anyway, okay, let's tell the story. And why don't we know the story? Why? I mean, this is 10 years later. Yeah, tw- we're, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary. I mean, 20 and years, the right? fact- not 10. Yeah, I know, anyway. right? <laughs> yeah, flies. where have I been? Um, yeah. <laughs> and and it, this is such an incredible story of how people come together when when trouble happens. And that I think is really the most important part for people to understand about this. It's very easy for us to get uh, caught up in the typical 9-11 hero narratives. Um, Obviously, of course, there was tremendous selflessness and heroism that took place that day, both by, uh, you know, official first responders, but also by the first first responders at most disasters. We know from research are actually just people, just civilians, just regular people who use the tools, the resources, the resourcefulness, the creativity, the improvisation that they bring to whatever circumstances they're meeting and, and, and work to help each other. And so often the news is punctuated by <laughs> divisiveness and um, things going badly and people mistreating each other. But the other piece that is really important for us to remember, especially in the midst of a pandemic, is this other capacity that we have that is ingrained in us to help one another. Yeah. And I think they also, I think the the media, um, just to touch on that, I think is important on that particular um, 
point that you're making is that we pinpoint certain heroes. This person was a hero. That person was a hero. And all those people that you're talking about with their heroic efforts get kind of lost in the background. I mean, that, uh, you know, and, and because they're not labeled as heroes, but uh, they're just ordinary people doing maybe extraordinary things. Absolutely. And that is really the the point that I think is so important for us to think about and to uh, and to put into practice now that we're two decades out from this horrific attack. And while we're in the midst of another major now worldwide crisis, um, is that that false division between heroes and everybody else actually doesn't serve any of us well at all. Um, in fact, what it does is that it, it creates this sort of arbitrary false division um, that diminishes our, our humanity and our human potential and limits our own sense of what we can do and the choices that we make, the, the, the effects of those choices, and how we can actually work to make life better for ourselves and for others by coming together and recognizing that shared humanity. And the way I like to explain it is that in moments of crisis, it really um, breaks down a lot of barriers that typically divide us or that sort of limit our thinking about what's possible. You know, just picture the horrible image of, you know, who's sitting next to you on the plane when the plane's about to crash, right? It's a perfect stranger, and yet something in us compels us to, you know, to hold hands with this other person and to, you know, accompany ourselves through that horrific moment. Um, and that is about shared humanity. That's actually who we are before all of the um, sort of societal and sociocultural uh, dividers and barriers get erected. And so the more we can do to recognize that shared humanity and um, to understand that we are absolutely interconnected. And if there's any, <laughs> there's nothing like a global pandemic to demonstrate how completely interconnected and interdependent we are. Um, so that's why I think this message is so important right now. We're actually remarkably capable of and driven to uh, are a better nature, um, and that 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 is altruistic, that is selfless, that um, that is about um, solidarity with others. And the more we can do to encourage that, rather than um, uh, diminish it or uh, or stand in the way of that, the better we will all be. So let's talk about the book and and specifically and and you know how, what you you know the, this kind of an attitude of. Uh, of solidarity and altruism, and then make the maybe be, be able to make those comparisons to like what is happening today uh, during the pandemic, and um, yeah, so some of the yeah sure, sure. Into, I can, yes, I can yeah, jump in. Yeah, um, so what happened that morning was that um, a plane. So it's very hard to sort of take ourselves back to all that we didn't know because we've learned so much since then. Um, but in that moment, the assumption by many, many people was that a small plane had crashed into Trade Center Tower by accident. And even in that moment, it was obviously it was a, a terrible thing that was happening. There were injuries straight away. Um, there were... Um, 
there was a need straight away for people to get away from the situation, from the debris falling, from um, from the fires. From there were people who were instantly um, burned um, when that plane hit. So we forget that um, yes, there's this, this escalating cascade of of catastrophe that unfolded that day. But even in the earliest moment, there was a problem at the World Financial Center. And the first people to recognize that that was going to involve um, the need for people to get off the island quickly were the ferry captains. Um, So these are folks who go over and back, over and back all morning long. They have, you know, extra boats out there at rush hour. um, And so there were boats that would have gone offline typically at a certain point in the morning once traffic slowed down. And instantly these boat crews, these ferry crews recognized that they were going to need to, um, to stay online and to, to, to keep helping. Instantly there were transportation shutdowns that happened right away. Um, if you go back and you, you know, do the research, which I did, you see that there are, um, for folks who are not in New York, that basically Manhattan being an island is something that we often forget, but without a bridge or a tunnel, um, and those tunnels involve cars, but also um, train systems, right, um, and subway systems, without a bridge or a tunnel, you need a boat to get on or off the island. And so very quickly, even after the first plane, even after ostensibly a terrible accident had happened, there were transportation shutdowns and mariners stepped up immediately to help. Obviously, it wasn't an accident, and the the situation just accelerated in in just really mind-boggling, horrific ways. Um, And mariners continued to respond throughout the morning, long before there was any official call from the Coast Guard to uh, summon all available boats. There were boats already um, that were already deeply involved and had been um, evacuating people for for hours at that point. Um, Especially, um, it was especially important for people who were injured that day. Um, We forget, because there were so many lives lost when the towers collapsed, that there were many, many injuries that were happening um, uh, sort of on, you know, on land outside the towers. There was debris falling there were people falling um, and and killing and injuring others um, when they landed on the street, and so it was it, it was a, a horrific situation. And uh, the mariners brought people as quickly as possible to ambulances on the Jersey side, very uh, very often. Um, but there were also boats evacuating people to Brooklyn, to Long Island, to Staten Island. Uh, any place that was a safer shore than uh, the shores of Manhattan ended up being. Uh, when people are, t- obviously, um, in doing the book and doing the research, you're talking to all of these people. Tell us some of the well, your reactions when you're talking to people one-on-one and, and hearing their stories. And I still go back to, and why haven't we heard their stories b- b- before you're, you know, as you say, 20 years later? Um, yeah, yeah. I think a big piece of it is that, um, New York city, New York, the reason why New York city is, is in existence and has its prominent place is because of New York Harbor. It's because of the waterways, the sheltered Harbor, um, that, um, was so valuable and this is a, a city that had a work Manhattan had a working waterfront. 
uh, generation after generation, and it was the lifeblood of industry, of economy. And um, what happened, um, actually, and it happened in New York Harbor, was that um, the the old tradition of break bulk cargo, where everything was onloaded and offloaded by hand onto onto ships, um, was transformed, um, and then it became uh, containerized. And so, a big shipping container would travel across the ocean and get lifted, uh, you know, like a big Lego block, and brought mm-hmm. onto the shore. And once that shift happened um, in the fifties. We needed more real estate on land um, to be able to accommodate those big shipping containers. And so um, the working waterfront moved off of Manhattan's shores and onto the shores of New Jersey and Brooklyn and, and places like that because of the amount of space that that shift in, in um, shipping required. With that comes this um, this period where the vestiges of the working waterfront are <laughs> the seedy underbelly of the city, and no one wanted to be anywhere near the river. It was polluted, it was dirty, it was nasty, and there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of distance that uh, that people wanted to make from the river's uh, shores. And then over time, um, the river gets cleaned up, the um, waterfront property, all of a sudden um, people realize the value of that, that property, um, and there is a new approach on the river toward a recreational, you know, to views of the river, to, you know, to a, a walkway where you can take a jog overlooking the river and things like that. So a passive recreational kind of approach. And actually that day, the lack of infrastructure that could accommodate boats along the shores of Manhattan, along the seawall, was a huge um, impediment to Mariner's ability to do the job of evacuating people. There were no ladders along the seawall that people could safely climb down. There were no bollards or fenders um, that would allow uh, boats, big boats, to be able to pull up alongside and get people off the island safely, um, which meant there was a lot of improvising that happened. Um, the uh, There was a NYPD harbor unit vessel where the, the captain of the vessel went along the South Cove um, pedestrian walkway and literally plucked the wooden railings off of the walkway so that pedestrians could board more quickly. Um, And, you know, so the reason why we don't know about this history is that we have completely forgotten about the role, the essential role of New York Harbor, of New York Harbor's mariners, of the working waterfront in in our lives. Um, and I feel like it's a part of the um, lack of respect for hands-on work and um, for blue-collar work in this country that we sort of dismiss the fact that these are important jobs that continue to this day. Yeah. Well, okay, let's connect that to what's happening now with the pandemic. Do we have the same attitude? Is, is, is the same that we did then, 20 years ago, that we don't have respect for the the working man, the working woman, the mariners that you're talking about? Are we doing, do we have the same attitude now in, in the midst of all of the, the chaos of the uh, of COVID-19? I mean, I think that the parallel that you see is having, that we have this, uh, this sense that essential workers are somehow disposable. Um, and certainly in the, in the earliest days of the pandemic, 
there was this notion that, um, yes, these folks had to go out and, you know, be on the front lines. And um, when you look at who are the folks who work in the grocery stores, who do the the healthcare work on the front lines treating patients, you see you see all of the cultural inequities that we have, that we're dealing with in this country. Um, and you know, the, the toll that that has taken on, um, frontline workers and essential workers is, is just, it's really devastating. And it's further devastating, um, even more devastating when you take into account that, um, people were sacrificing themselves and their, their families to be able to do the work so that we could get through to the place of having a vaccine and now that we have a vaccine, the the vaccination rates are, are really demoralizing for folks who have been fighting for so hard to save lives. And now that we have the tools, we're not seeing the adoption that um, that we'd like to see. And part of my goal with, with talking about this book now is to actually draw the connection to the fact that we can actually make better choices, that we can actually... Um, highlight the examples that have happened during the pandemic of neighbors helping neighbors, even as we were, you know, sanitizing our groceries and afraid of our mail, you know, and quarantining our mail. um, There were neighbors who were helping each other. Um, I know of examples of, you know, an elderly woman who didn't have internet access, her neighbor was working really hard to, as soon as vaccines were uh, ready and she was eligible at an age that was eligible, you know, she was scrambling to try to find an online appointment. I know folks who have shared food. There are all of these three refrigerators that, um, that have sprung up at least throughout Brooklyn. I'm not sure if they're in Manhattan as well, but where people just go and bring food. And if you need food, you go and open the door and, and there's food for you. So, those examples are also happening, and they, they're just a testament to this being our, our true nature, to actually help each other. Um, and making space for those stories, making space for um, examples of how we come together when terrible things happen, that just, it's contagious, right? It's, and, uh, and more contagious than the Delta variant, I would argue that when people are kind to each other and show each other kindness, we, um, it, it, it spreads, it mushrooms out, and that is what we need more of right now. We need to recognize that we are actually all in this together. Um, and I, I really, I guess the, my next question is, it seems to me that the media isn't doing what you've just been talking about, making the connection between help, you know, being altruistic, helping your fellow neighbor, all these kinds of examples you gave, but that there's not a connection between not getting vaccinated and not having respect for those frontline workers, for the doctors, the nurses, the EMT people, the people who are out there, uh, you know, saving lives or in hospitals, and that they are really putting their loved ones there, those people at risk. I don't ever, I don't see the connection when, you know, you listen to the radio, or watch television. Uh, it's, it's, it's not there. It's not there in the media. You know, the, the media doesn't even exist anymore as it once did. It used to be that there were, you know, X number of channels you could watch on TV or listen to on the radio. The media is not a unilateral entity at all. Um, and the, what we're learning in this current age of media is that 
we all can very easily end up in our own echo chambers, um, only listening um, to one side of stories. Um, and that that is hugely dangerous and, and damaging. I, I have seen stories where people are talking about that, that connection, right? And so I have read those things. I have heard those stories. And so I think a piece of it is that um, that drawing more attention to these stories will, will help, right? The more that we can talk about these things, it's the information spreads, but we also need to um, find ways to bridge between communities, between uh, segments of media population, right? Um, and and one of the powerful pieces of this story is that you have workaday people working on boats, crews of these boats, who just said, "Okay, what can I do to help?" You know, and it wasn't. It wasn't about, you know, I'm not going to help the businessman because I'm a blue-collar guy and, and those guys don't treat me with respect. And it wasn't like, you know, I'm, I'm only going to help Republicans or Democrats, right? It was none of yeah. those were, were um, barriers. And so instead of, um, instead of getting trapped into these small stories over and over again, I think it's important for us to see, to see the full potential here to, to, I try to look at this story as a bridge to be able to reach everybody. Well, I I think you're doing that obviously in this book. And uh, what point did you decide, well, I need to do this. What was the motivating factor? I mean, what, what, what was the, you know, when when you decided, okay, this is an important story to be told. I need to do this and I, I need to do it now. I came to this story with great, great, uh, trepidation and um, and concern. Uh, my I, I served at Ground Zero um, for four days, as you mentioned in the bio, and so my own the psychological fallout from that time is something that's still with me. And so the idea of uh, doing the reporting that would be necessary and and having those one on one conversations that you referenced earlier it means walking with people through some of the most harrowing moments of their entire lives. And there's a tremendous amount of, um, of trust that, uh, my, the people I interviewed put in me, um, to, to t- do, do right by this story and to bear witness to what they had gone through. Um, and it, it, it ex- it's very, has been very, very challenging emotionally, um, to, to spend that time with people. And the reason why I, I was I was invited by an editor to to turn a story that I'd written into a book, and I and I was very hesitant, but I felt a real responsibility as a journalist, um, as as a historian, as somebody who had been who, who was part of this community. I knew that I could um, bear witness and chronicle these events in a way that. Uh, and from a perspective that other people didn't have. And so I really felt a responsibility as, as, as all of those things and as a member of this community and, and really as a patriot, as someone who really wants this country to rise to our, our ideals, um, which we are certainly not living up to right now. Um, and all of those things were motivating factors, but it has taken a toll. Um, and my goal for this anniversary is to do my best to get this story out there and um, to do my best to let it go, to let it go. When you say taken a call, uh, taken a toll, uh, Jessica, like, what do you mean? I mean, it's taken a toll on you. How is it 
specifically taken a toll? Um, in many, many ways, but in terms of the, the psychological toll, it means that I've, while while people have been able to move past this day and spend their lives thinking about other things, I have over and over again been immersed in chronicling the stories um, and, you know, listening to the interview tapes and, you know, transcribing and writing and revising. And so I'm sitting with these stories day in and, and day out. Um, and, um, you know, in this, in this period where the book is out and I'm now talking about it, it means that every day I have to sort of brace myself to have a conversation about something that is my least favorite topic, which is September 11th. Um, and so uh, that, that's what I mean by the toll. Um, and to me, that is worth it if we can um, manage to demonstrate to, to all of us and remind all of us of our capacity for goodness. That's what makes it worth it. Um, and so that is, that's how I try to focus my energy. This history is really important. And it's really important because when we make our decisions about what we're going to do next as a country, as people, we need to draw upon everything that's happened before. It's and we are in a moment of reckoning in this country where we're realizing the cost of not telling the whole truth about what has happened in the past, because we live with that legacy. So um, what I mean to say about this is that um, we can draw upon, when we are trying to make decisions about what happens next, we can draw upon this as a part of our heritage. This is something that we did as people uh, we came together to help one another, irrespective of political party and otherwise, um, and really joined together based on our shared humanity and this concept, not of heroism. I mean, n- nobody I spoke with was talking about, ah, yeah, I'm a hero. You know, no mariner was walking around with a capital H on their head. Instead, they're like, it wasn't even, it wasn't even a choice. I didn't even like, it's, it's just what you do. This is just what you do. And so I don't want to diminish the fact that people did make that choice over and over again. They dropped off passengers on safe shores and they gunned back to Manhattan Island, the island on fire to pick up more passengers. And we did not know if this was the beginning or the end of what was coming. We really, and it's hard to remember that because we know the timeline now, but over and over again, these individuals made that choice to go over and rescue still more people, but it didn't feel to them like they were making a choice because it was just a given. This is just what you do. People help each other. This is right. This is who you are. And this is what you do. And we we only have two minutes left. So I want to make sure that people do read your book and I want to, it's and saved at the seawall stories from the September 11th boat lift. So in, uh, in one minute, tell us where we can, you know, buy the book, get the book, download the book, and uh, <laughs> absolutely website, websites where we can get in touch with you. Yes, thank you. Yes, no problem. My um, so my website is the best. It's a it's a hub because it'll link you to everything else. Um, so my website is jessicadulong.com. From there, you can find links um, to buy the book. Um, buying the book at independent bookstores is my preference, um, and bookshop dot org is a place to do that. Um, the other thing is, is that part of my mission here is to really help us uh, get a grip on the grief 
and loss and trauma that um, this pandemic has uh, unleashed. And so I'm doing a lot of writing about that um, as well. And I feel like the tsunami is, is only just beginning. Um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah. And, and so what, what we, whatever we can do to help each other out in that um, is really important. And so I'm doing writing about that too, which you can find on my website as well. Great. Jessica Dulong, thank you so much for being on the show today. You really are doing good works, and, and we thank you for that. Um, saved at the Seawall, Jessica Dulong, thanks. Thank you so much for your help sharing this history. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. <laughs> <laughs>